Over the last several weeks, Pastor Mark and Pastor Keith have been taking us on a tour of six churches in Asia Minor, peering into the divine mailbag, if you will, of the letters Christ directed the Apostle John to write to each one of them, recorded in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. This morning we are in chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, the seventh and the last of Christ's letters, his letter to the church at Laodicea. Up until now, each letter began with a commendation. Most of them included a rebuke. Not so with Laodicea. Laodicea received only a rebuke, no commendation. There was nothing good about them at all that Christ could point to. Their sin was so great. In fact, his rebuke of them is clearly the harshest that he has delivered to any one of the churches. And I will forewarn you this morning that the imagery used in the scriptures is not always what we might call appetizing, such as in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, Jesus said, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Although the NIV and other translations use the word spit, the literal Greek here is vomit. There is no way to sanitize this, folks. Lukewarm churches and lukewarm Christians are utterly distasteful to the Lord, to the point that he would want to regurgitate. The believers at Laodicea were in a dangerous place. They were playing a game, merely flirting with true faith while possessing very little. They may have fooled some people, but they certainly didn't fool God. In verse 14, before Jesus issues his rebuke, He lists his credentials for doing so. To the angel in the church at Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Christ is sovereign. He answers to no one except his Father. Everything he says is true and reliable. He existed before the creation of the world, and he lives now as its ruler. Laodicea had good reason to listen up to what he had to say. Laodicea lay at the junction of two important valleys and three major highways. Because of its location, uh, it was one of the richest commercial centers in the ancient world. It was a prominent center of banking and commerce, uh, the equivalent of our New York City or London. It was so wealthy, in fact, that uh, during an earthquake that happened in 60 A.D., when many cities in the area were leveled, including Laodicea, uh, it was the only one who had enough resources on its own to rebuild without having to borrow from Rome. In addition, the city was, was known for the soft black wool her sheep herders produced and a world-renowned medical school which discovered a miracle ISAV. But despite all they had to offer... The people of Laodicea lacked the most important thing. They didn't have a living, intimate, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Christ's description of them uh, as lukewarm was illustrated by uh, the one very glaring inadequacy in Laodicea's resources, their water supply. Their water came through an aqueduct uh, from a spring in Hierapolis about four or six miles south. 
their water was famous as hot springs and would have provided rich medicinal benefits. By contrast, the water at Colossae came from ice-cold springs. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm, useful for neither. It's as if Jesus is saying, you are providing neither refreshment for the spiritually thirsty, nor healing for the spiritually sick. You may not care about your spiritual lukewarmness, but I do, and I cannot tolerate you. Their condition was nauseating to him and made him sick to his stomach. Commentator Leon Morris writes, There is more hope for the openly antagonistic than for the coolly indifferent. There is no one farther from the truth of Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. For his coolness is a denial of all that Christ stands for. One pastor that I knew several years ago uh, contemplated how he might drive home the meaning of lukewarm to his people so they would understand just how distasteful the Laodicedans were to God. And so he had his ushers pass out uh, little cups of lukewarm chicken broth for each one to drink. Ushers, you want to come? No, they aren't here. Uh, I can't imagine much that's more distasteful than lukewarm chicken broth. As a, as a kid growing up, I can remember uh, at restaurants that uh, when the waitress would bring my mom's coffee, she would always take the saucer from beneath it and cover the cup because she wanted her coffee with her meal. She liked her coffee hot. Well, I, I have inherited her bent. And not that I like coffee, because I don't, but I like hot things hot, and I like cold things cold. Our kids used to cringe whenever I might beckon the waitress back over to our table uh, to take something back to the kitchen to have it heated to the temperature where it should have been in the first place. You know, they, they, they just wanted to crawl under the table whenever I did that. I don't do it very often. Unless I miss my guess, there are some foods that you would prefer to eat hot and not lukewarm, uh, like, like french fries. You, you want some lukewarm french fries with that? You know, I, I don't think so. Or what about uh, canned peas? Now, there's a delicious lukewarm delicacy. What, what kid doesn't like lukewarm canned peas? Uh, and, and then mashed potatoes and gravy. I, I saw this on TV this week. You can now get mashed potatoes and gravy in a vending machine. You put in the money, the, the cup drops down, uh, a blob of who knows what on top of that, and a, and a few squirts of anybody's guess, and lukewarm, I'm sure. Mashed potatoes in the vending machine. I don't know about that. But lukewarm doesn't taste good. It doesn't taste good to us. It doesn't taste good to the Lord. And like us, he would just as soon spit lukewarm out of his mouth, like Laodicea. Can you imagine being known as the church that made God sick? That might be the question of the morning. For this letter is not just written to the church at Laodicea. It's written to any church that will sit up and listen. And even if they won't listen, it's still written to them. It's written to us. For God is displeased with a church or with a Christian who is happy with itself, content where it is and with what they have accomplished. Pastor Don Brown writes, No church has ever arrived this side of the coming of the Lord. 
Yet far too many churches appear to be consumed with one passion, maintaining the status quo. Listen to how pastor and author Francis Chan describes lukewarm Christians in his best-selling book, Crazy Love. Lukewarm people attend church regularly. It's what's expected of them, what they believe good Christians do, and so they go. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when it comes to conflict. They want to fit in both at church and outside the church. They care more about what people think of their actions, like church attendance and giving, than what God thinks of their hearts. Lukewarm people are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do nothing. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expects from all his followers. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, their co-workers, or their friends. They don't want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Lukewarm people gauge their morality of, or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that though they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they are nowhere as horrible as the guy down the street. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and he is indeed a part of their lives, their money, and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control them. Lukewarm people love God, but not with all their heart, soul, and strength. They're quick to assure you that they try to love God like that, but that sort of devotion isn't really possible for the average person. It's only possible for pastors and missionaries and radicals. Lukewarm people don't live by faith. Their lives are structured, so they, they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life pretty well mapped out. And they don't depend on God on a daily basis. The refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they're in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they, if they suddenly stopped believing in God. And finally, lukewarm people really aren't much different from your typical unbeliever. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. They couldn't be more wrong. You may have seen yourself in one or more of those. It's hard-hitting stuff. And what does a lukewarm Christian point to as evidence of his faith? His works. Although he might be the first one to tell you that works don't save, that's exactly what he's banking on, because an intimate relationship with Christ just isn't there. But the Laodicean church had not always been lukewarm. There had been a time when she was full of zeal and love for the gospel. But something happened to change all of that. We find a clue about what that was in verse 17. Jesus said, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was affluent, rich, prosperous, but their wealth cast a deadly shadow over the spiritual life of the church. Because of their fat bank accounts, they felt self-reliant. 
As far as they were concerned, they didn't need to depend on anyone but themselves, not even God. In short, they had fallen for the thinking of the world and bought into it fully. The Laodiceans' lukewarm spirituality was due to their contentment with their material wealth and their ignorance of their spiritual poverty. Mind you, material wealth is not wrong. You don't find that message in Scripture. But it can be a huge trap. It can mess with our priorities. It can mess with our sense of contentment. And it can easily lead to a misplaced focus of security. Scripture tells, calls the love of money the root of all kinds of evil. And he who chases after it does so at his own peril and of those that he loves. When I was in seminary, a college student interviewed Ruth and me for a college assignment on marriage. He probably thought we were experts. We'd been married for about a year and a half. Um, one of his questions in particular arrested me. He asked, what do you fear in your marriage? Although I, I had not given it much prior thought, the answer came to me fairly quickly. Material wealth. Ruth and I were actually having fun, um, making our income stretch, learning to budget, sometimes buying our groceries with coins out of our coin jar. I hoped that I would always trust the Lord for meeting our, our needs, and I feared that an abundance of means might threaten that. The Laodiceans had long since crossed that threshold. Materially, they had it all, but they were blind to their deeper need. They were wealthy, all right, but spiritually speaking, they were living well below the poverty level, and they didn't even realize it. And so Jesus threw out some hard-hitting words to get their attention. He said, you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind, naked. To shake them out of their spiritual lethargy, Jesus described their condition for what it was, and he didn't mince words. Their material wealth had blinded their eyes to the point that they were unable to see the mess that they were in. But Jesus offers to replace their wretchedness, their poverty, their blindness and nakedness with true riches, with spiritual sight, and with garments of righteousness. And he begins to roll out his cure lukewarmness by advising the church to come to him for the things that they in their arrogance and self-reliance didn't think it needed in verse 18 Jesus said I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see Christ reminds the people that all things come only from their Heavenly Father and that only by a wholehearted reliance upon Him can they regain their spiritual fervor. He exhorts them to seek the kind of riches that can never be destroyed or taken away. Jesus said in Matthew six nineteen through 21 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus calls them to cover their nakedness with white garments, garments of purity, garments of righteousness, 
Garments obtained only by being washed and cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And he invites them to use his eye salve, his precious word, the only cure for spiritual blindness so that they can truly see. Note in verse 19 that Jesus doesn't threaten to spit the Laodiceans out of his mouth because he despises them. To the contrary, because he loves them. Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Like a parent who truly loves his children, rebukes them and disciplines them when they do wrong. Jesus rebukes his followers. <coughs> Some time ago, I sat in the veterinarian's office and I noticed a display of pet leashes on the wall. The motto on the placard caught my eye. Unleashed is unloved. I thought to myself, if this is true of a dog and his master, how much more so of a child and his parent? Because one way a parent communicates his love to his child is by setting limits, and without them, a child may not even know that they're truly loved. In the same way, Christ shows his love to his children. He challenges our behavior that doesn't please him. He calls us back to himself. He says, be earnest and repent. Lukewarm children of God need to repent of their spiritual apathy, to change direction, and to truly embrace him as Lord. The slide into lukewarmness is exactly that. It's a slide, a slippery slide. It's not a pit that a believer accidentally stumbles into. That would be relatively easy to avoid. Rather, it's a gradual downhill descent with a nearly imperceptible starting point. An unchecked thought. A recurring thought. Meditating on the thought until it gives birth to action, to sin. And before long, the downward slope becomes steeper and the lukewarm slider picks up speed. The cautions in God's word that would interrupt this slide are many. Among them, Matthew 6:24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Lukewarm Christians think they can live their lives with one foot on God's side and the other in the side of the world and get away with it. But they cannot. John wrote in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of the Father lives forever. Lukewarm Christians think they can love God and flirt with the world without getting burned. They cannot. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 101, I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Lukewarm Christians think they can feed on filth and hang out with filthy people and not get filthy. They cannot. But the lukewarm Christian has a choice. 
in Psalm 119, 30-33. Notice each of the deliberate choices the psalmist makes. There are five of them. See if you can catch them all. I have chosen the faithful. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands where you have set my heart free. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Be earnest, Jesus implores, and repent. In verse 20, Jesus extends his invitation to fellowship. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This verse is often taken to picture Christ knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart. Indeed, God does that. But in its proper context, this verse is speaking to self-deluded, lukewarm Christians who think that all is well with their soul, and it's not. In a beloved uh, painting of Christ knocking at the door, perhaps you've seen it, the latch is not shown. It's assumed to be on the inside. In keeping with Christ's plea, if anyone opens the door, I will come in. Christ is far too much of a gentleman to barge in where he's not wanted. He respects your right to say no to his request. And he gives, and he grieves rather, when we choose to live our lives apart from a deep fellowship with him. For with Christ on the outside, there can be no intimate fellowship or sharing of his marvelous grace and genuine wealth. As I studied uh, this passage in preparation for this morning, I was reminded of a little booklet written years ago by Robert Munger entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Perhaps you read it, maybe you have a copy of it. But Munger begins this way. One evening I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular emotional thing, but very real. Something happened at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire on the hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been silence. He filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful presence. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will. In the joy of this new relationship, I said to Christ, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything that I have belongs to you. Let me show you around. And then, room by room, as it were, Munger led the Lord on a tour of his heart. And he began to grasp what opening the door to Jesus would ultimately mean. While in the study, Munger realized that Christ must be Lord of my mind. In moving to the dining room, he was convicted that Christ must be Lord of my appetites. In the living room, Munger was reminded that Christ needs to and deserves to his daily fellowship. They checked out the rec room, and Munger learned that Christ must be Lord of his choices of entertainment. They made their way through every room of the house and finally came to the hall closet from which a stench was emanating. Inside were some nasty things left behind from Munger's old way of life. As he gave the key to Jesus, the Lord opened the door and cleaned the closet out, and Munger's heart was fully Christ's home. I believe God is speaking to hearts this morning. 
Now, as I studied this passage as the closing one of the seven letters to the churches, how, how appropriate that God would put this question to us this morning. Are your hearts, is my heart fully his? God is speaking to hearts who do not yet know him, and he yearns to come into your life and to bring a whole new relationship between you and him. He's speaking to hearts of some of his children who have let lukewarmness creep in and are missing out on the abundant life that he died to give them. Whichever the case, Christ wants to take up residence in your heart. And not as a guest, but as a permanent resident. And to be welcomed into every room and every closet to enjoy sweet fellowship with you. Pastor and author John Piper writes, Christ did not die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watched television in the den. His will for the church is is that we open the door, all the doors of our life, and invite him in. He wants to join you in the dining room to spread a meal out for you and to eat with you and talk with you. The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have everything that your heart could desire. Fellow Christians, are you closing anything off to him this morning? Is there a vestige or a remnant of something that you are allowing to continue in your closet and it's stinking up the whole house? Will you give the key to the Lord and allow him to open it and to to rid it out that you're finally finished with it? If you do, like Munger, you will never be disappointed. It will mark the beginning of a whole new relationship with you, abundant and free. Lukewarmness and mediocrity can be a thing of the past, a forgiven past, and a whole new life can be yours. Perhaps you've never opened your heart to Jesus. Maybe to you this morning he's still a stranger. Please know that he loves you dearly, and he yearns to be a part of your life, to come in and to transform you and make you a whole new person. Verses 21 and 22 close out this section. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Father, this this morning uh, we realize that We've been dealing with important, sacred truths. We realize, Lord, that left to our own devices, we can make a real mess out of our lives. And at one point or another, all of us have. But, Lord, some still are. Some of your children, Lord, are allowing things to continue that no one else knows about, no one else sees, but you do. They become things, Father, that dominate them beyond what they might understand. They aren't truly free in their spirit because there's something back there that's holding them back. Father, you want to release them from that today. 
You want to gain full entry. Lord, you, you, have, you have lived with them for perhaps many years. But there's still a stench in the closet. And you haven't been given the key. Lord, I pray that there would be those this morning who would be willing to say, Lord, okay, I'm done with that. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Take it away. And Father, for others who perhaps haven't realized that your son really wants to come in, but he does. Father, might those people today realize that there is a, a much better way to, to do life than the way that they're, that they're doing it. That by bringing Christ in, by allowing him, by, by accepting his invitation to open the door, and allowing him to, to move in, to take up residence, to become their Savior and their Lord. Lord, might this be their morning to do that. Bless us, Father, as we continue in worship. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this closing song, folks, if God has spoken to your heart, you need to respond to him. And perhaps in the quietness of your heart where you are, if you care to come down to the front and to declare this new decision at the altar, feel free. May God bless you as you worship together.